0: And welcome to The Pure Report. I'm your host, Rob Ludeman. It's time to bring the orange with everyone's favorite segment-oriented podcast episode. Yes, that's right. Andrew and JD are back for another Unplugged. Gentlemen, I think we are on episode five of the Unplugged series, and I would encourage everyone to go back because we get such great feedback from these episodes everybody always learns something as a takeaway but andrew jd i'm thrilled that you're here and excited to hear what the agenda you have planned for today and andrew as our mc i'll hand it over to you man
1: thanks rob i think before i even say the agenda hey jd it's good to see you again it's like we just saw each other last week but with video on something like that i don't know
2: Oh, yeah, man, you know, it's always a pleasure. And, you know, Five Timers Club, I feel like uh, they're not getting rid of us now, baby. We're here.
0: This does count as the five time. That's true. Cause I think you all have been on in some fashion outside of the unplugged format. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Up to mm-hmm. five times. And I still don't have a really good jacket design for you, but, you know, maybe something jean, maybe something orange orange denim but uh it is great thanks for for making it to five on the unplugged one of our little ideas way back when that has has borne fruit has borne fruit off the tree
2: yeah thank you that's exciting but you know what i was just thinking as cool as five feels like you've actually been running this podcast for so much longer that do you you even have an idea rob of what are we up to
0: now just in total pure report episode numbers where are we We went well past 150 sometime in the last three to six months. I mean, this was just a tiny little idea because I was spending so much time sitting in the car driving to work when I started at Pure and I looked around and asked around and wanted to see if there was a podcast because that's what I was doing in the car and made a pitch to our creative team. And it became what it is today. And I don't know, tens and tens and tens of thousands of, of listens and downloads, which is exciting. So thanks everybody for your support. And then the opportunity to bring in really interesting folks like you as my co-hosts into the program. So thanks for that JD. It's a labor of love. It's uh, not my real job here at Pure, but it's something that I love to do.
1: I think what I'm hearing there is that we have Silicon Valley traffic to thank for the origin <laughs> of the Pure Report. That's the unsung hero today, maybe, which we have. You haven't the had the last year or two.
2: Is that the <laughs> only good thing to come out of Silicon Valley traffic? I mean, it might be.
1: <laughs> maybe. Maybe. I've lived some of it, but I don't know how you ever, especially Rob. But I'm, 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 I'm being derelict in my duties here. I'm not doing my good MC agenda style. So to do that, and I was even joking a little bit about JD and I spending some time on coffee break last week. You're going to hear a common theme, but we've got four things to talk about today. As always, a what's new segment, you know, for all of us, sometimes that's a little bit of a, a look behind the curtain. Things that have been going on. We're going to do our third of the 15 decisions. Now, if you're thinking, I just heard a, a summary version of that last week on the coffee break. You're right. This is where we're a little bit more relaxed. We dig a little bit deeper in uh, the third decision in this this case is talking about consumer flash and MLC. These are the 15 design architectural decisions behind Pure overall, all of our products and they play out different ways. Number third, the third segment, we're gonna look at announcements specifically with really kind of a focus, a little bit of maybe a, a field focus on FlashArray 6.3 and some of the major features there and even what led into those features because they kind so of cool. all link together. Simple. Mm-hmm. And then last but not least, the tip of the week. If you don't know what NPIV is, I know you're going to want to wait around for that because it's the world's most interesting acronym. Maybe, maybe not, but it's actually kind of interesting. It's a thing that I saw, you know, five, 10 years ago. I was like, I don't know why this would matter, but we actually did some really neat stuff with it from a pure standpoint.
2: So, abstraction for the win.
1: Exactly. Diving into the first segment, which would be what's new. I think for all of us, we were just going to rotate a little bit around Accelerate. Rob, I almost want to toss it to you first because this is, JD and I have involvement here and we're pouring parts of ourselves into it. I feel like for you, it's a little bit more all consuming behind the scenes right now.
0: Is close to a full-time job right now, besides managing solutions and managing the competitive team, as I do here at Pure, but yes, Accelerate is near. It is coming up in June, so it is now less than, I think, eight weeks away, maybe even seven weeks away. I've lost track of time since I've been traveling the last couple of few weeks, but we are right in the mix of deciding what great content that we are going to have. And I'll give a little preview for folks that uh, are esteemed co-hosts here JD and Andrew may or may not be involved in the payload that we deliver at the event, but uh, it is really exciting. Uh, We're we're working on a hybrid approach this year where we have some live on-site things, and then of course, trying to get as many people that are interested and love Pure or curious about Pure to come online and check out the great catalogs that we're gonna build for content across the tracks, different solution areas, core products and technologies. And of course, all the great keynote activity that uh, that is being worked on right now. Really, really exciting keynote. I've seen a preview of what, uh, what storyboarded out there. And it's just going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to seeing people, looking forward to engaging with people online. Accelerates that, uh, that one time in the year where we pull everything together that is orange and super exciting. And I'm just happy you both are a part of it this time as well. Well, you have been the last few years too, but really excited that we could get you involved.
1: For those playing the at home game, the some of the first Pure Report podcast that I was on was actually when Rob and I met up in person at Accelerate three years ago. Now it was the one in Austin. Uh, JD, we've we've said this before. JD, you were at that one without a Pure badge on yet, wandering around nope. being being your your awesome self, right? But without a you know a Pure logo on it, you know kind of thing. So, so actually cool. he probably That's has some when- stuff on. It.
2: That's when C got announced and it blew my mind and I went back and I again wasn't even working for pure yet. And I went back into the field I said, This is so cool. It's gonna change your life. You gotta check it out. True story.
1: From a personal standpoint, for accelerate, um, there's always the the aspect of where, and hopefully I won't steal all of your thunder, JD, but you know, riffing for a little bit. We part of what you and I do is we talk to customers for a living, right? Kind of thing. And we have to research and know what we're talking about, and we don't just make stuff up. So you get to be real, I sometimes think of it as kind of like polished up talk tracks. You try things multiple ways. Um, you see what kind of makes sense to people and you iterate. So often as part of our role, we're submitting into the internal call for papers. That's not too dissimilar uh, for folks who've been to VMworld, maybe you've submitted to the VMworld public call for papers, you know, that kind of thing. And just because we do what we do it doesn't mean that everything gets accepted, but some do, fortunately in this case for, for both you and I. So and actually Rob, yeah.
0: What I love about both of your approaches, though, is that you're both really good storytellers, right? And so there's one thing to just show up and and roll through a bunch of slides with bullets, or to tell people the depths of all the knowledge, because you need to share with them something that you think is important. You both have a really great way of articulating a story around something. And it's typically around a solution to solve or a problem that is out there, but it's a really interesting way. And again, please, for, for those out there, we'd love to see you at Accelerate, but check out Time with, with JD and with Andrew, because I always find it just captivating to hear the storytelling, the talk track and the way you deliver it, that makes it far more compelling than just a bunch of words on a slide or a bunch of numbers
1: to that uh, the one of the sessions the only one I'll highlight because both you and I had a couple JD one was around talking about the anatomy of an attack we have a bunch of stuff as you might have guessed around how pure helps with ransomware uh, one that I have I'm going to talk more about the anatomy of an attack and defense in depth and you better believe there are a ton of stories in there and as they should be they're basically all anonymized although they're real truly you know JD
2: I'm inspired now when I show up I'm totally going to bring this voice to my presentation so that I'm telling a story we're going to say in a world ravaged by (laughs) ransomware there was only one answer and and you'll have to come to this session to see what it is what do you think
1: I I think what I just heard is we promised a silver bullet to the ransomware scenario (laughs) and and now we've got trouble I don't know but (laughs) fun announcer voice time anything else you want to edit on Accelerate before we go to segment number two
2: Man, I'm freaking out a little bit because, uh, yeah, I just got a couple of these sessions accepted, uh, and I'm going on PTO here in a couple of days. And so basically, I got two days to write a presentation, but it's fine. I work well under pressure. Uh, it's going to be great. We'll, we'll have a lot of fun.
1: <laughs> Late nights, fun stuff. Vacation's good, though. So, But it always does kind of compress things on either end, it feels like. Just being real. These are good problems to have. I'm, anyone listening, we're not complaining. Just It's, it's the reality of navigating man. schedules.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Number two, we are now wandering back to the 15 decisions. So this is segment number two, to be clear, in case you're, you know, you're listening along. Our segment number two for today's episode. So as we discussed before, there's, there are 15 decisions that actually predate back to 2009. I've seen a slide that says 2009, you know, the origin of pure. We've talked already about number one, build in simplicity. Number two, the most efficient architecture at scale. The third one. And we've even taken a little bit of liberties with the name here. Originally it was listed as Consumer Flash. You know, we've kind of because when you said that 10-12 years ago, everyone knew that you meant MLC and not Enterprise MLC, but we're, so we're going to say it's the third the third decision is around using Consumer Flash that used to be MLC in the past, maybe that's QLC today. So I think I, I think I'll kick it off a little bit JD. I'm I'm wandering back personally. Kick away. To the days of uh, <laughs> of um, of SLC, of MLC, of enterprise MLC, EMLC. Uh, TLC was maybe a glint in someone's eyes and kind of crazy talk, but you'd use SLC. We're going to leave competitor names out because we're not trying to take pot shots. We're just being real. You know, you might use SLC as an add-on cache in a certain array. Some caches were read-write. Some were read-only. You would use MLC as maybe a tier within a tier of storage. It was all this stuff around trying to figure out the curve of disk at the time was very expensive per IOP and inexpensive per terabyte. Flash was very expensive per terabyte and inexpensive per IOP, especially read IOP, you know, that kind of thing back in the day. Pure took the path of saying, we're doing all Flash, which especially back then was still kind of expensive. Number four, in case you come back next next time, hopefully it will, is around data reduction. We'll get there next time, not today. But even then, there was a sense of, okay, if you look at where the cost curves are going to go from an economies of scale, there's no way that Enterprise MLC is going to have nearly as much production as and maybe 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 JD or Robbie can help me out like the evolution of the iPod to the iPhone like those trends were already pretty clear on the consumer flash side, although they were early. <laughs>
2: Yeah, but so uh, I think those trends are, are are really indicative of kind of what we're doing. But I, actually, you kind of made me think, I'm going to throw you a curveball, Andrew, that we, we didn't plan this. We didn't talk about it at the coffee break. But hearing you go through that story actually made me think of something else. It's incredibly relevant here. When we think about or when we've talked about those different grades of flash, we've generally focused on the density, right? So SLC, single layer cell, I got one, one bit, you know, MLC, two bits, TLC, three, you know, so forth and so on. But there's actually, if we, we kind of remember, I've got to take ourselves back it's been a while since we really dug into this but it was actually more than that that went into um those actual ssds so consumer grade didn't just mean a denser media type with different resiliency characteristics it also meant less over provisioning it also meant a less effective onboard controller that's where some of the actual software was that 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 manage that flash, you know, cheaper controllers, more over There was more to it. And, you know, I want to jump the gun a little bit here, but I think that plays really nicely into the story of, well, Hey, we were able to use quote unquote consumer grade flash because those things like over provisioning, those things like having a controller to manage the flash, we pulled that into purity. We pulled that into what we did. Right. And so, you know, we really were simplifying the architecture.
1: There's one, and it's been a while since I watched this, but you can still find it online. Our friends over at Cloud Field Day and Tech Field Day, you know, Stephen Foskin and Love team. them, check them out. Um, some of the early episodes that I watched, and I was watching these as I was joining Pure to kind of go back and, and learn my history, if you will, was actually around reverse engineering the firmware of the various consumer SSDs. Because that was almost kind of like a, a miniature storage array where you didn't necessarily have visibility into when it was going to go out to lunch to do garbage collection, you know, kind of thing. And even. Now, this is pulling forward from like decision eight or nine that we'll get to later. You know, using uh, consumer SSD. Together. Yeah, they all fit. Was actually one of the pieces there was that you'd always do a race to rebuild from RAID or pull it from the native you know block that you were trying to read because you didn't know at the time if a consumer SSD, consumer flash might random not respond in some millisecond timing, but in a couple milliseconds. And if you're going to do an enterprise array, you've actually got a map that's so a that reverse engineering of the firmware and of course that leads into stuff with direct flash down the road, and then removing that kind of almost that shim layer, if you will, at a software standpoint, but trying to figure all that out. I think I'm staring thinking here a little bit. So when we start w- walking into this, there are pieces there around how we did i/O scheduling, right into SSDs. we're going to kind of geek out here, and you may have seen some of this past around bundling large writes together to take advantage of some of the large page sizes. We had to think a lot about. Flexible drive types and sizes, and all of this was before, back in the day when we were using SSDs before we had direct flash. One fun thing there, though, is around Moore's law and the impact of that, and how we can leverage flash. And I almost want to do a—I don't want to take you too unawares, Rob, but I know that in your past life, you've had a lot of experience with Moore's law and thinking about it out on the server side. You know, any, anything you want to toss in here as it relates to flash and Moore's law, or even actually for those out there, define Moore's law first if you don't if you don't mind.
0: No, it's, it's for, the, for those here. I you know I could use a refresher. Yeah, to. yeah. Well, and there's a common misconception, right? I mean, for for years and years, people just generally equated Moore's law to clock speed, right? It was very easy. People went in and said, "Oh, it's you know, there's a it's about a doubling of clock speed." And there, and and large, of it was driven by consumer, was the the thought that oh, well, we're selling laptops and personal Well, even way back when personal computers, and so we just educate the masses that Moore's law is. You know, a doubling a clock speed, but as one that started out in the chip industry and, and worked in microprocessors, it's it's related to transistor density and the line widths that you can get. And sorry, geeking out heavily here, but the line widths and and you know how many transistors can you actually fit on a die, and and so. You know, Gordon Moore, uh, famous from Intel, had this theory that, you know, every two years the transistor density would double. And, you know, let's face it, physics is hard, right? At some point that does break down because you can only move an electron from A to B so fast, right? We we thought at one point, 15 years ago, we'd be at like 10 gigahertz chips. Guess what? Physics wins and <laughs> moving electrons is really challenging. But you have this interesting dichotomy of Moore's law driving compute speed and what can be done, and then you also have what we're doing on the flash side, and that comes down, I think, even more, Andrew, to in economies of scale, right? It was expensive, but over time, because you can put more transistors on the die, because you can do more with the flash memory, you were able to actually catch up to and even maybe, maybe surpass what the what the microprocessors could do and that then relates to some of the cost curves that you did mention so it is a really fascinating for me you know 20 years ago i was deep into all this moore's law stuff and cpus and how do we position our our microprocessor where i worked at that time against other things that are coming out and and what are the trade-offs that designers make when they choose to make a chip, but it all really equates to the things that you're talking about here relative to uh, number three and economies of scale and, and how Moore's Law plays in.
2: So I got a question for you, Rob, and I, I want to be honest, I have not researched Moore's Law too much. Yeah. You know, I kind of, I know the i know the traditional, like, oh, clock speeds go faster, and that's you know, kind of my traditional thinking. So tell me, you know, when we think about flash, really, the at least in terms of density, the evolution that we talk about is being able to have multiple voltages that we measure, and that's how we get additional bits. Is Moore's law kind of driving that part of the equation too, or is that something separate?
0: It's related, right? I mean, transistor density, the more you can pack on, the more that you can generally do. But when you get into memory cell technology, that's a whole nother ballgame, right? And, and you're talking about you know, 60 cells and single cells, and and you know, Andrew was mentioning that a moment ago. So then again, it's the trade-offs of what you can do relative to the voltage switching, but also what you're doing within the memory cells themselves. So it's it's related, but also there's more that you choose with the architectural design on a memory chip as to what you can accomplish. But Moore's Law helps in general because the more you can pack on, the more you can actually get done. Fascinating.
1: The other piece I was thinking about there is this is now, again, this is like jumping in the time machine a little bit, is that this was also the days of trying to treat, there's this kind of, maybe not holy war, but definitely different approaches of do we treat flash like disk, and we try and make it look as much like a disk as possible, or do we treat flash for what it really is? So if we think about disks, hard drives, you know, kind of thing on disk, you, you fundamentally have a physical spindle and they can only rotate so fast. 5,400 RPM, 7,200, 10K, 15K, et cetera. And in that world, sequential writes are pretty happy. Sequential reads are also pretty happy, you know, kind of thing. Random writes are not so much, but, but you usually don't have to do random writes with good structured file systems kind of thing, append only file systems. Random reads get very, very painful. And that's where latency spike. So that's the world of disk. And then do you make, go and make flash try and look like a disk, which was you know, so that you, if you have a big storage array and 20, 30 years of history, well, you, you're you probably going to adapt this new flash thing that may not stay around. Who knows, maybe 3D change memory and other stuff is going to come and consumer NAND, that's going to be gone soon enough. Why should I adapt my whole architecture to match it? Pure said, no, we're going to make a fundamental bet on flash as being the new medium. And if you do that, it flips things around in that. And now I'm borrowing actually from Ryan Oler, He's on the Pure IQ team. He did some of the early training that I was in. And he liked to give the analogy that with flash reads are free and writes are expensive. Uh, the analogy you'd give is that you know, with on a flash, a read is kind of like looking inside a room to see if the light is on or off. You can do it instantly over and over again. It never hurts anything. A write is kind of like flipping the light switch on and off. Every time you do it, it actually degrades the cell a little bit. This is now where we get into the idea of program erase cycles. You can only write to a bit so many times before it can't handle a charge. That gets worse as we go from SLC to MLC to TLC to QLC. But this then starts to then go to some of the pieces that make Pure you know, fundamentally different, because if reads are free and even better, random reads are free, that can play into so many things in your architecture. Like the one we just mentioned about you know, that you can actually do a race to rebuild from parity at the same time that you try and read. Because why not? Read I.O. is effectively free and it doesn't hurt anything. Now, if you're playing the at-home game and you're thinking about read disturb once you get to TLC and QLC, good for you. Because there's, there's some caveats to that analogy. Any analogy breaks down eventually, but you know overall.
0: Well, and take this up to an application level, right? So think about what the average database does, particularly relational. And again, I'm drawing on some of the things that I tend to do in the past, but you know, let's say you've got an Oracle database out there and let's use a call center as an example. What are call center folks doing? Right. They're they're getting calls in, they're accessing, you know, they're accessing data. They're just doing a read. They're looking into the room. Ah, you are this person from this state with this account number. Okay, awesome. How often are they then changing that information? Not as much. Right. So that's where the rights are a little bit more expensive, but the, the amount of write depending on that application uh, is, is going to be far less versus the reads are, you know, free-ish, as you said. Um, but for that right application, now there are things that are far more right intensive, right? If you If you take that database example further and you go into a data warehouse then where you are changing up the data ah, okay. Now, maybe there's a need for a different type of solution and something that is a little bit more right heavy that can handle that type of workload. So these are the interesting things when we kind of up leveled a little bit from, you know, from from the actual media itself into the behavior under the covers and how and why we position different different uh, different solutions that we have for different workloads
2: well and, and and we've really started i think at the appropriate place which is comparing and contrasting based on performance because especially in the early days when we thought about flash what did we think about we we went after those workloads that really needed performance and so i think that's a very logical place to start but as we've gone through this evolution and as more and more media types have become available it's it's we've moved uh, we've kind of moved the goalpost a little bit performance and in some respects has kind of become table stakes, right? I mean, we've gotten really good at that. We solved that problem a lot of ways. Um, and now we start to think more about resiliency, right? Because as we get into a place where we're using QLC and, and maybe what even what's even next past QLC, we can talk about that, but as we start to think about um, these new media types that are that are really overloading those cells with more and more pieces of data through the through the um, <clears throat> the voltage that they're holding, the charge that they're holding, uh, that really starts to wear those things out. And so now, being able to be deterministic about the I/O pattern, whether it's sequential versus random, or, or even to the level of controlling exactly where rights go to can really impact that resiliency paradigm right and so a big part of what we do when we when we think about flash globally not just what's in traditionally the scope of what we call an ssd but actually all the all the chips that are in the entire system that a single flash ray has domain over now we can really start to maximize the benefit of being deterministic about where we lay that out, and, and being able to treat that treat those cells really nicely, and and essentially bring down that programmer race curve to the point where uh, we we can get resiliency characteristics out of traditionally low end flash or or less resilient flash is probably what I should say, and really start to get those enterprise characteristics right.
1: The the fun to me, business validation of that is what you just said, JD. We've seen engineering stuff. We believe that it's true. Like if we actually fundamentally like charge NAND cells, no, 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 that, that's not what we do, right? Kind of thing. But part of why we're comfortable talking about this is that Pure for years now has had a flat and fair maintenance program where the maintenance doesn't spike at the end of year three. And that's not just to throw a bucket of money at a program to make it competitive kind of thing. It's actually fun. I mean, in some ways, frankly, it probably started out as a recognition of that. And you know, I had this as a customer where like year four, it was like, here's your big maintenance bill and you'd like to upgrade or pay your maintenance bill. Well, that's an easy choice, right? Kind of thing. But some of that was actually based on the underlying components failing, right? Maybe part of it was, you know, a forced upgrade cycle. But part of it was frankly, disk drives were more likely to fail and other components. If you actually embrace flash as what it is, We've seen both with SSDs and now with direct flash modules, which are, you know, we're kind of making our own SSD, if you will, dramatically lower failure rates, low enough to the point that it actually makes consistent flat maintenance in years four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, as long as much further out actually being viable from an economic standpoint. And that shows up in Pier's financials when we report back to the street around profitability. You could tell if that actually wasn't being backed up by lower failure rates driven by better engineering.
2: Yeah, it, it's on us, right? We take the risk with that flat and fear that you talk about. It's it's on us. We've got to replace that if that fails. So we're not just putting this out that <laughs> out there as marketing. You know, our as as you pointed out, our bottom line actually depends on on it being true. And so I, I love that we're we're really kind of backing that up by being the ones financially responsible for that.
1: I think the, uh, the I think I'll maybe wrap this one up a little bit And, you know last thoughts for you but the, the, the we can go to the classic kind of Wayne Gretzky quote uh, if you don't skate to uh, where the puck is you skate to where the puck is going and some of this we go back to the founding from Kaz folks like Kaz to Pete Kirkpatrick you know both have present you know, Pete's I love some of Pete's segments on Tech field day about how they, you know they saw where this was going. They knew where Flash was. They had enough visibility where it was going, and what we were going to do engineering-wise. And, and this is why this, although it's say consumer MLC, this is a decision. One of the fifteen decisions underpins so much that happened over the next decade, twelve years within Pure, and we've kept getting continuing benefits out of you know kind of a gift, that, a technical gift that keeps on giving, if you will. JD or Rob, any last thoughts before we move to segment number three, JD?
2: My kind of closing thought on this is, you know, we we hear the buzzword from time to time, software-defined storage, right? And mm-hmm. and I when I think about our approach here, it's it's a little counterintuitive because we talk especially in this architectural decision, we're talking a lot about the hardware that's being built. But when I think about purity and the software that's on top of it, what are we actually doing? I would argue that we're actually software defining even more of the hardware because we're taking <laughs> a lot of those hardware pieces that were traditionally built right into the SSD, and we're pulling those out as software. Now, what does that do? That gives us the ability to go have highly optimized hardware. Essentially, there's kind of less stuff in there because we've, we've pulled a lot of it out of software, but it, 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 I would argue that this is really kind of a pinnacle almost of software defined storage, and it, but it allows us to work very closely with this highly optimized hardware platform to deliver on our value.
1: right love it i think with that we'll move into segment number three which is its announcement time talking about some of what's new now i know rob that you had recently michael leworthy on and you already wandered through some of the cool new stuff in flash ray 6.3 so i think we got advanced permission to not duplicate that we're going to do a little bit of a different twist you know but hey but we all look at this stuff from different perspectives so as um, as you may have seen, if you're listening to this, depending on release dates, FlashArray 6.3, there's a great blog post on it. There's a previous podcast, there's a tech talk. Go look at all that stuff, right? We wanted to cherry pick, I think, kind of three main items and give a little bit of perspective on them. Uh, first is replication for files, active DR for files to be good, because there's real meaning on that. It's not just replication, it's active DR for files. And what does that mean? Well, why are we calling it that? Secondly, hitting in on self-service upgrades. And then, of course, last but not least, going down the safe mode path, which relates to ransomware or maybe we should call it malicious data, uh, data deletion protections. You know, you could kind of wrap all those together because it doesn't have to be someone from a ransomware standpoint. It could be a a classic rogue admin, if you will. Hopefully not. Hopefully not in your environment. Right. But they relate together. So I I think I'll kick it off here a little, JD, if it's all right, thinking about um, an active DR for files. So this is where if you look at some of what we've talked about in the past around FlashArray and FlashBlade and the paths that we've taken from a development standpoint around the protocol stacks, um, when, we, when you look at NAS in general, SMB, NFS, it's hard. There's, been, there's companies out there that have been doing this for a very long time. We've had customers that keep asking Pure us to do this in ways that leverage our underlying capabilities with evergreen and non-disruptive upgrades and never migrating your data. Unless you want to, you can move your data around if you want to, but you don't have to for like hardware upgrade reasons, that kind of thing. And so as we acquired CompuVerd, which you know go back in the time machine is the foundation for FlashRay file, um, we did have to make the decision about, are we going to do this, some of the pieces, some of the capabilities, the fast way or the right way long-term? And these decisions aren't free, let's be very real. So we are actually doing things from a replication standpoint now that that maybe in a perfect world might have been a little bit sooner. JD?
2: If you had been paying attention to the first segment, you probably already knew that we were going to do that, right? Because I think this mirrors what we were talking about with Flash. We could have done the easy thing and just retrofit SSDs and kept on going. Or we could have done the hard thing, but the thing that had the better payoff down the road, and it's obvious what we picked, right? So I think those those really, when you see that there's a, a recurrence of the same theme over and over again, that plays into culture. I think, and I'm really proud of the culture that we have, and consistently doing the right thing.
1: Mm-hmm. So as as it relates to six point three, and I love that linkage. Very cool. We've actually had capabilities from a replication standpoint on the FlashRay file for actually a while. We, we partnered with Comprise, who's a great partner that often focuses around data migration, but ever so much more. I'm not trying to limit what they do, right? Go check out their website kind of thing. But we actually focused with them around some replication capabilities, as we knew and we were very public about. Um, we were public with our customers and you, and you and I, JD, would walk through roadmap pieces and you know, being very transparent about that. We were working on native array capabilities for replication. That is what is launching with six point three, calling it Active DR for file services. And if you've looked at, and actually, maybe I'll toss this over to you, JD. So, so, why is this called Active DR versus I don't know, just file replication or async replication or some other random name? You know, what makes it Active DR for file services?
2: Well, for one, we've built a lot of uh, brain recognition around Active DR, right? <laughs> you no, know, we talk we talk a lot about um, you know we we always talk about partnering with our ecosystem. And there's a lot of data protection, disaster recovery vendors out there that we play incredibly well with, but we also want to show as much value as we can in the data services that we provide complementary, Right. And we, we, we spent a lot of time when we built active DR, not just building replication. It's not just about moving data from point A to point B. That's certainly the core fundamental part of it, but it's, what how do you manage that data? How do you fail over? What is the experience when I need to promote and maybe do a test uh, and then demote or or fail back? You know there's a lot of different components that go into that that make it more than just replication, right?
1: I know, I know you're supposed to stop replication, you know, not have any protection for a couple days. And then once you've done your successful test and you hope nothing like really goes wrong, then you put it back. Is that, is that right? Or am I like a decade behind?
2: And if if that was your workflow, how often do you think that would actually get tested?
1: (laughs) I I don't know if I did the over the top sarcasm well enough. So sorry, I'll do better next time. Keep
2: going. (laughs) No, I mean, that that's really it. It's really ActiveDR. Yes, at its core, it's a replication technology, but it's, it's, it's really all of the, what are we known for? Data services. It's the experience that goes into how do you bring that to your environment? How do you use that with your application? How do you actually build a dependable, repeatable disaster recovery strategy on top of it, right? And that's what ActiveDR does.
1: So similar to Active DR for block, you know this is a continuous replication. You know we're not just waiting on a schedule basis. There's things there about how how much we guarantee around RPO, but we're actually tracking rights without managing journals. So there's some of that same similar Active DR goodness. There's even pieces about you know kind of pre connection on the DR side. And I'll flip my you know you know my sarcasm around of like you can actually uh, as you go and you you do test failovers, you don't actually have to go and, and stop replication, you know that kind of thing. And that this is as with all the other flasher application features there is not an additional appliance there's not an additional license there's not additional Well, you just go and turn it on it's an extra spot in the ui not a super dramatic one because it should need to be fundamentally right mm-hmm. yeah. i think with that let's go into number two which is self-service upgrade. actually before i go there, there there's a part of me where sometimes I, I want to give huge kudos to the engineering team that worked on ActiveDR. I'm thinking of here of Alan Driscoll, John Carnes and Product Management. Um, I'm going to be bad here and not remember some of the engineering names because there's this This has been a huge effort over the last year and a half to two years for for better or worse, right? But it's been such a huge effort because we haven't wanted to just put something out there that puts the burden of the complexity from the customer side. But the whole idea of making something simple or uh, intuitively channel, you know, some of your previous discussions with Kaz or Av, I think, you know, where it's not simple, it's intuitive, you know, that whatever that combination is, that actually takes a lot of engineering work under the covers. And sometimes if I'm not careful, I can almost kind of breeze by this with customers and the it's what you would expect from a pure standpoint without kind of putting a little bit of a spotlight on how much effort it takes to, to keep delivering on that promise. So, I almost kept going to number 2 too fast. You know, Robert Diddy, anything you want to add before we go to number 2?
2: Your developers are the best. Thank you for all you do.
1: Love it. Yeah, so so much more succinct than I am. Look at that. But hey. Okay. <laughs> number 2. Self-service upgrades or the foundation for the beginning of all the amazing stuff that we're talking about with Pure Fusion and having more cloud-based management capabilities. So let's kind of we'll play this one out a couple of different ways. Uh, as, as PURE, we have, we have a growing number of customers that have large fleets. They have lots of things to keep up with, even if the upgrade experience from a PURE standpoint is a white glove approach where support is highly engaged and runs checks because, hey, you don't just upgrade storage casually, no matter how good the process is. You just don't do it casually, even with non-disruptive capabilities, etc. So there's actually been a, a very... This goes back to the origin of PURE. The storage software upgrade process has been a support-driven white glove approach. In recent years recent year we've had some scheduling capabilities added into pure one but this takes that a lot further and maybe even before we get to the um, get, get to that piece there's a foundational capability here jD well
2: i just I just want to point out and look when i I almost want to be a little contrarian around this because I've worked with some uh, (laughs) uh, not to be named other vendors in in my past that, you know, I've been doing self-service upgrades for years, you know, download a patch, I apply it and I click submit and I'm good to go. Right. So why, why did this take so long? Why are we just now here in 2022 getting self-service upgrades for flash array? And it goes back to those things that you just said. It's, it's not just taking a binary and slapping it on a controller and clicking go. There's so much more that we have historically insisted be part of that upgrade. It's doing those health checks. It's verifying that failover is set up properly. It's making sure that you have a high degree of confidence that that is gonna proceed without error. And it, it's, it's because we put such an emphasis on the quality of that experience and ensuring uptime that, you know, we, we've, we've kind of forced it to be the way it's been, but the thing that's really enabled and I think this is a question you ask is, okay, why are we, if, if that's true then, and we were so concerned, are we not concerned anymore? Are we just throwing <laughs> caution to the wind? Absolutely not. What we're doing is we're developing additional capabilities that allow us to have this bi-directional communication with our cloud, with pure one. And if we wanna see other examples, we can think about some of the work we've done, for example, with with Fusion, right? And and being able to use the cloud as a management plane. And so we've gotten to the place in our evolution and our development that now we can actually take some of those services that we've built And we can apply, we can allow the customer to consume them in a, in a subscription based, a self-service based way. So we're not backing off of that commitment. We're not throwing away all of that investment that we've made. What we're doing is we're actually enhancing the customer's ability to take advantage of it. Right. And I think, you know, maybe maybe I got a little off topic there, but I think that's kind of what you are asking. Wasn't it Andrew?
1: It is. I think we always kind of orbit around the questions, you know. That's what we do. That's what we're paid to do. The um, So there's pieces here like you alluded to. You know, there's a lot of stuff that support would do and had various scripts to do. And as that has been more standardized and programatized internally, you know, some of the upgrade readiness pre-checks that's done via pure one cloud data, actually, you know, downloading software bundles to the array, then an on array pre-check. And then even pure one support can be in, can continue to be involved. This is not taking anything away from customers like the previous experience. There's also a core thing there that you'll see around what we're calling the pure one edge service security. Um, or actually pure one edge service and then security around that, because as soon as we start to enable some level of bi-directional communication and capabilities, we take that really seriously from a security standpoint, like we have to or else we shouldn't even be doing it. I was even reading a pretty deep paper there that's been published recently
2: so, so I, I you just made me super nervous I'm, I'm a pretend customer now and you are talking about security and I appreciate that you know you're, you're taking it really seriously but what if I don't want this are you gonna force me to do it
1: nope not at all ah, so if you, you want to continue with things exactly the way that they've been I, I should have done better with the softball you know sorry I'll do better now. <laughs> um, so th- th- it is it is a fundamentally an additive thing but actually when we when we look at it we, we had to think very carefully for folks like that because we have um, we have uh, government agencies that are customers. I think that's a, a safe way for me to say it. We have large financials. We have highly regulated industries that are customers. And highly regulated uh, doesn't just mean it's a dark site and they can't use Pure One. It means that there may be a very stringent level of certification and validation and security checks, even sometimes stuff inside Purity with how encryption is handled, all this stuff that goes into it. So if you're actually listening to this and wondering about that, there's a great paper. I'm looking at it right now. It's called the Pure One Edge Service. Um, it is it is proprietary information, so you know you may actually have to work with your SE to get it. But it actually walks through this architecture and what we build in from a security in the cloud standpoint, and how we're actually trying to handle a lot of this up front. And if you d- dig into this and you have questions and concerns, we want to hear those. Right? This is where a lot of the world is going. You see, whether it's our you know our friends at Cisco with what they're doing with Intersight or other companies, there's a move toward cloud-based management. But man, we have to do this carefully and do it the right way. And This is the very beginnings of some of that but in a way that brings direct benefit from a self-service upgrade standpoint. Finally, number three, the last one in our segment number three, and we're winding down here, is is around safe mode and the vision. So if you've been watching along with Pure for a while, you hopefully know, uh, safe mode is fundamentally looking at malicious data deletion scenarios on Pure systems and protecting against those. That's the origin of where it came from with a, the with a customer. That actually, I was hearing. I think Rob Lee actually tell a story about that recently. He he was in a meeting where some of this came up first, and that could be. You know, originally it was potentially around possibly a rogue admin scenario that looks very similar to either someone's in your environment for weeks or months and gets access to various credentials. Now we're doing more both in six point two and six point three. I think today, J.D., we agreed, you know, if we do the classic, you know, kind of why, what, how, we're not going to try and spend time with the how. This was, this, we've, we're already maybe going a little long here. We're going to focus on the why and the what. The why is ransomware continues to get worse and more pervasive and more problematic. And hopefully that doesn't, statement doesn't sound ambulance chasing just by saying it. It's reality. Palo Alto reports, Splunk reports, my saved Google email search on ransomware that sends me too many things every day, you know, kind of thing. So the why is almost too obvious, potentially. The what is where it gets interesting.
2: Actually, I want to stop you. I want to go back to the why just a little bit because Mm -hmm. you're absolutely, I'm going to yes and you. (laughs) What you said, absolutely true. This problem is not going away. It's only getting bigger and bigger. But I think if we go the next level down in granularity, why? So we we have safe safe mode. It's incredibly robust and resilient. Why continue to develop additional capabilities? Because we want to be able. We want our customers to be able to use safe mode in as many scenarios as possible. And let's be honest, there are a couple of scenarios prior to six point two and six point three that did not lend themselves very well to safe mode. Think about applications that create a lot of transitory data or ephemeral data, data that exists for a very short amount of time, doesn't really need to be protected, and then goes away. If I try to use safe mode with an application that has a data pattern like that, that can cause tremendous amounts of, you know, ephemeral data to be stored on my array driving up utilization and and essentially, you know, causing causing maybe some headaches for me, right? And so um, I think Part of the why, I don't want to skip too far ahead, but part of the why is how do I introduce additional capabilities to cover some of those scenarios and allow my customers to use safe mode in as many scenarios as possible, right?
1: And you actually reminded me of one more piece of the why. This is why we do this together. For better or worse, Um, safe mode Very comparatively simple, and I'm comfortable saying it that way. This is a complex space that's frankly very hard to protect against the threat scenarios that we usually outline, say around someone being in an environment for weeks or months, compromised administrative credentials with Active Directory or storage or backup systems. Okay, this is hard stuff. However, we have seen cases where either customers have been on the fence about taking time to enable safe mode. Sometimes maybe, I've been here in the past, paralysis analysis. So if you identify with that, you identify with me because I've been there in the past too. Or sometimes where there's even cases where folks have said, you know, I want to do this, but I'm looking at their budget costs or the reasons and they don't realize the enormity of the actual, how bad it can be when they get there. And so there have been, let's be real, we've had cases where we've seen of customers, non-pure and with pure, where they didn't enable some of the protections that they could have And we, while even though we've educated about that, we still feel some responsibility, like we are here to help. So if we can fundamentally make it easier or more by default, or remove some of the extra pieces that wrap around, like you just referred to JD, we wanna keep pushing the dial further in the direction of these capabilities and protections are on by default. And in some cases that means they need to be more granular so that people can be protected. Kind of thing. I'm dancing around yep. in a public format what is potentially some very challenging stories. If you're curious about some of these, we're always trying to be really good about specific customer examples. Um, definitely feel free to reach out. But there's definitely a driver here that is focused on cus- helping our customers and some of them that have had very bad days. And we want to prevent that from being you or them in the future, even with the current capabilities we have. Okay. I think I'm all right to go to the what. Looking deeply into the what. I want to geek out. <laughs> so the what is, let's start with 6.2 actually, before we even say 6.3. So in 6.2, we added what we call global volume protection. That is the ability to have a special P group. It's a P group like any other P group, but you can say What's this a a P special- group. Ooh, thank you. Good call. A protection group. It is a level layer of abstraction. It's a group you can make on the array that you can put volumes into. And then that's where you make your snapshot schedules. Unlike some other platforms I've worked on in the past where maybe the snapshot schedules are set per volume. In this case, you set them on the group. You could put one volume into one P group and kind of do a (laughs) per volume thing if you wanted to. But in general, you put a bunch of volumes into a protection group, AKA P group, and then you'll go and make a snapshot schedule on them
2: and i think the key thing that you said is that you have to put a volume into a p group right so this is kind of an opt-in thing i've got to remember when i create a new volume to go put it in the p group right
1: except with flash ray 6.2 we give you the ability to say i'm going to have this special p group that every single volume in the array is going to get put into with a default snapshot schedule attached to it. And you can choose what that snapshot schedule is. So it's pushing the dial a little bit further. You could say as a storage administrator, the owner of the storage and saying, you know, hey, I wanna make sure that for anything created on this array, there's a default level of snapshot protection. That's even a little bit similar from different from some of the safe mode, you know, malicious data deletion protection scenarios. It's actually making sure that there's a level of snapshot protection. And then we move into 6.3. 6.3 has two banner items. One is, and actually maybe I'll I'll let you keep going with this one since you uh, helped me out with making sure to define p-group. So, hey, object safe mode that's at p-group granularity. Unpack that a little bit.
2: Yeah, so you know, we think back to global volume protection. We're creating that new uh, p-group that has every volume in it, but still safe mode is is turned on on an array-wide basis, right? The reason why the volumes that are in that, P group are automatically protected is because I have a ray wide protection on. Now let's go back to, you know, one of my why's. you know, what if you've got that application where I I just, I, 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 I don't want you to, I don't want you to take protect safe modes on that particular application. I create a ton of them because that's part of my workflow and I throw them away when I'm done. And I, if I lose some, that's really not impacting my business. Meanwhile, I have these other volumes that are absolutely mission critical. I cannot lose those, those must be protected. Um, and when you've got that dichotomy of some volumes need protection and some volumes don't, prior to 6.3, that was a challenge, right? You kind of had to physically separate those on different flash rates, but now, with object granularity, I can choose just to turn safe mode on, on a particular set of P groups. So I get to pick which P groups need that protection and which don't. And again, I wanna be really clear here, for the default customer, for most of our customers, I'm gonna gonna advocate for turning it on array wide. Mm -hmm. That's how you're gonna have your best protection but when that unique scenario comes up where you need that level of granularity should be the exception, not the rule, but when it comes up, now we've got some more flexibility to help you out in those scenarios.
1: That relates to that flexibility is if we want to push the dial further from a general, um, if we want to push the flexibility further of making it deep default, we have to add more granularity. So... The other piece that you're going to see coming out within the 6.3 family. So full disclosure, if you're if you're listening at home and thinking like, "Hey, I'm I'm a pure customer," I see 6.3.0 or 6.3.1. Some of the auto on safe mode capabilities are actually coming in a release later in the 6.3 family. Just being very real from a timeline standpoint, we're working on them. There's multiple pieces there that go toward when you instantiate an array, you set up a new array that more of these protections, global volume protection, other ones are actually you have to actively opt out of them versus choose to opt in. I'm not going to go down the detailed in that why, what, how thing, how of the how, like all the what all those pieces are, but the philosophy is that we want to make it more of these protections enabled by default at the when the array is set up. And then if you need to pull these back, that's fine. But we want to do our part to put you in a default protected from what could be the worst day of your storage career. Versus you've got to understand and turn stuff on.
2: Yeah, it's really shifting you from that, shifting you from an opt in mindset to an opt out mindset. I don't want to opt in to security. I want to opt out in those rare circumstances where it doesn't apply to me, right?
0: Yeah, Yeah, I feel like history professor Ludeman here today, but this is very reminiscent (laughs) of things that we previously did at another company with a certain Unix operating system, and I'll name it Solaris where we had trusted extensions that were designed in eight for security. And when we moved to 10, because there was no performance degradation, right? To the OS and the functionality, the engineers at that time just added those trusted extensions in. And so again, the user had the ability to go in and turn those things off if they felt they weren't necessary, but at default, at install of S10 and going forward, you had trusted extensions. So I love seeing that here where we have it, we deliver it, there's no performance degradation, there's no reason why you wouldn't want to, but you still have the choice if you don't need to. Maybe it's non-prod data or something that's not significant or whatever reason, you still have that flexibility and that choice because that's really what it's all about. History lesson done.
1: Well, and I think this is where I tie it back to the top a little bit. I have this sneaky suspicion, Rob, that there may be some deeper dive sessions on ransomware and six point three at Accelerate. Maybe
0: I'm really excited. Actually, everything that we have touched on here goes into deeper dive. Even the active DR piece. Let's just say there may or may not be an actual customer that's going to join uh, join our new PM for replication to talk about what they're doing, and as well with active cluster. So yes, I have a little bit of inside baseball knowledge on the sessions that we're developing, but. Everything that we covered here today, if you want to learn more in depth than all the great knowledge that JD and Andrew have given you today, hey, why don't you head on over to purestorage.com slash accelerate, and you can register for the event there. Yes, it is a blatant plug, but as I said earlier, we would love to see you, to have you come hang out online with us and dig more into some of these features, get access to pure experts, hang out with our really valued alliance partners, and hear from customers like you that use pure storage technology on a daily basis and achieve really great outcomes and solve some of their uh, most significant problems.
1: Since we promised it, as always, we don't exactly plan this out and we got going a little bit, JD, but I feel like we promised people a tip of the week. So I'm going to shove it in here right at the end. Number four, last segment, tip of the week. If you're thinking NPIV, like we said at the beginning, is my favorite acronym that I don't actually know what it means, you're not alone, because NPIV means N-PORT-ID virtualization. I looked it up to make sure that I got it right. When I first actually heard of this, it was in a VMware context and like virtualizing WWPNs and adapters. And I was like, that sounds kind of interesting, but I have no idea what the point is from a flash array standpoint, we actually use this in an interesting way. Because as you know, as you may know, if you're listening in on FlashArray, all of the WWPNs are virtualized in general, right, kind of thing. So this is, you know, the, the fiber channel identity, if you will. But when it comes to failover, it's not just used for, you know, around NDUs where you can change the controllers. It's even used during a failover process, a software update, upgrade, a hardware upgrade. Actually, even if you have non-disruptive failovers from the array standpoint, if a path disappears, and now we're into, you know, multipath IO, MPIO. If a path disappears, the host's going to wait until the, until the SCSI timeout, or maybe some other timeouts, to actually figure out, oh, I can't send IO down this path, I'll go use this other path. That can be disruptive to the application, even if the storage is fully available. So we actually took NPIV one step further, not just from a general NDU, non-disruptive upgrade standpoint, but even from a failover standpoint of actually masking the WWPNs so that the hosts don't even know there's been a path change and you don't have to wait for NPIV timeouts. JD, I know you had some kind of practical comments on that one, too.
2: Well, I think, you know, it's at some level you might say, okay, who cares, right? I've got mm-hmm. uh, a highly resilient architecture and flash array that allows me to fail over very seamlessly. I've got MPIO that allows me to, uh, from a host perspective, to be resilient against a path loss. So why introduce this extra complexity? I mean, it, it, it is, it's additional feature software overhead, right? Why introduce that additional complexity if I, if I have um, those capabilities in other ways, and what I th- when, when I think about it, I think it unlocks additional future characteristics. Is one thing. For example, let's start thinking about, and you know, we're getting a little forward looking here, but let's think about some of the, the technologies we're building, like fusion, where we're abstracting away the concept of the hardware from the application owner, and you don't even know. If your volume is on a flash array, or which flash array, or what kind, you know, you you really start to lose, uh, intentionally so, that visibility into the hardware. Um, having technologies like NPIV, where we can virtualize uh, those imports and, and really effectively move them anywhere, allows us to build better services uh, on top of on top of our platform that that, that take advantage of that abstraction. Right. So that's kind of how I think about, you know, leveraging these capabilities It's not necessarily what do they give me immediately. And there are some advantages of course, but it's, it's kind of how does that unlock, what does that unlock for me in the future?
1: Less disruption to the application. And then that plays out in various increasingly cool ways over time. I think that's an all right way to say it. Yeah. I think we, uh, we almost got into too much today, but you know, it's always fun. JD, it's always a pleasure. Rob, Thank you so much for having us back to you.
0: Absolute delight. I love this and we will keep it going. Let's do episode six soon and maybe some new segments that we were brainstorming on before we started recording, but thank you out there for checking out this edition of the peer report unplugged with Andrew and JD. We will keep these coming. Keep sending your feedback and send us an email at purereport at purestorage.com if you have any specific comments or topic requests and we'll get it along to the team here to make sure that they put them on a future episode. And with that, I think we are done, gentlemen. Thank you so much. With that, we'll wrap for Pure Storage. My outstanding co-hosts, Andrew Miller and JD Wallace. uh, And this is Rob Ludeman saying, don't look back, something might be gaining on you.